quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Congress closing in. Lawmakers prepare to impeach President Trump for a second time. Texas trip, the president makes his first official visit since the chaos in the Capitol and a banking block. Deutsche Bank, the latest firm refusing to do more deals with Donald Trump. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. First move. Great to be with you on yet another day where eyes remain firmly on Washington, D.C. Congress expected to rule out a motion calling for the president's removal via the 25th Amendment. But the House could vote to impeach Donald Trump for an unprecedented second time as soon as tomorrow. Then what? Great question. We will discuss during the show. But in the meantime, big business continues to distance itself from politics, but look at Wall Street carrying on regardless. Futures are higher, but off their best levels, I have to say, after Monday's pullback, the first pullback in almost a week. Tech was the underperformer, yet financials and energy stocks gained on hopes, I think, for more financial aid to drive the recovery. And cash continues to come off the sidelines. Deutsche Bank reporting the strongest inflows into equity funds on record over the past two months. Remember what BTIG's Julian Emanuel told us yesterday, that risk assets like commodities and even things like Bitcoin should do well in this environment where liquidity is king. But of course, he also said, buckle up for more volatility. Short term, of course, we know why the COVID crisis continues to escalate. Keep in mind that the United States alone is losing 3,000 people a day to the virus and vaccinations are happening far too slowly. That, of course, is the story across much of the developed world. Take a look at what we're seeing in Europe. Lower. There are fears Germany's current lockdown may extend until April bucking the trend Asia, the bright spot overnight. China's Shanghai composite closing at a five-year high. We'll take you there too to find out what's going on. But vanquishing the virus is still the best hope for revival and recovery. Here in the United States, meanwhile, it's also all about Donald's denouement. Let's get to the drivers. The US House is expected to vote imminently on a resolution urging Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove President Trump from office. The action sets the stage for a historic second impeachment vote in the House tomorrow. Sunan Safati has all the details. Exactly one week after a pro-Trump mob held a deadly riot storming the U.S. Capitol, House Democrats plan to vote to impeach President Trump for the second time tomorrow. Formally introducing an article of impeachment Monday, charging the president with incitement of insurrection. The capital of the United States was attacked by a mob of the supporters directed by the president of the United States who called them there and who sent them there. 
And there has to be accountability for that. Some Republican lawmakers already calling on Trump to resign. And one GOP congressman says he is strongly considering voting to impeach him. To me, this is not the timing that we, you know, that is ideal. I would prefer that we have a more fulsome investigation uh, into what happened. Most of what I know about January 6th came either from personal experience or from Twitter. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it is, um, it is obvious that the president is no longer qualified to hold that office. Despite a source telling CNN House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy indicated Trump holds some responsibility for the attempted coup, he told his Republican colleagues in a letter, quote, impeachment at this time would have the opposite effect of bringing our country together when we need to get America back on a path towards unity and civility. Every hour that he sits in the White House is an hour where the American people uh, in the world is less safe. So I will not rest uh, until we ensure that uh, he is removed from office as quickly as you possibly can using whatever tools are at our disposal. The House will vote on a resolution tonight urging Vice President Mike Pence to use the 25th Amendment to remove Trump from office. Pence, one of the apparent targets by some rioters, was seen leaving the White House Monday night after speaking to the president for the first time since last week's insurrection on the U.S. Capitol, to administration officials tell CNN. President-elect Joe Biden says the decision to move forward with impeachment is up to Congress, but wants to make sure that it does not derail his agenda. We go half day on dealing with the impeachment and half day getting my people nominated and confirmed in the Senate, as well as uh, moving on the package. Meantime, some Capitol Hill Democrats say it will be possible to hold an impeachment trial without slowing down the start of Biden's new administration. We can do impeachment while we're doing these other things that deal with this, that combat the coronavirus and rebuild the economy starting now, starting January 20th at noon. Joe Johns is in Washington, D.C. for us. Joe, the standout phrase, I think, in, in that package for me, the timing is not ideal, correct? And perhaps the understatement of the year, and it's been a short year so far. Let's skip ahead to a potential impeachment vote in the House. Let's assume they do impeach President Trump for the second time. What then? How does the Senate handle it? Because you and I were talking about waiting 100 right. days yesterday. That's not now the noises that we're hearing. That's certainly not. Joe Biden talked about that yesterday. Apparently, some of the Senate Democrats have already gotten to him on that issue. There is some talk coming from the incoming majority leader now, Chuck Schumer, that he would move forward with the trial during the earlier days of the Biden administration, perhaps even spending part of each day dealing with the impeachment trial and part of the rest of the day dealing with, for example, Biden's appointments as well as some of his policy prescriptions, uh, which would be a way for the Senate to essentially walk and chew gum all at once. Uh, that does sound like that's what they want to do. And again, as we were speaking yesterday, Julia, there really is an eye in the Congress toward uh, doing this in a way that they can eventually put themselves in a place to try to assure that the president of the United States doesn't run again once he leaves office. But that would require more than just a vote even to convict uh, Donald Trump on the charge of impeachment that's being uh, put through the House now. It would also require a separate vote 
just a simple majority vote to say that he could no longer hold any office uh, of uh, prominence in the United States. So that's what they're talking about doing. But Julia, I do want to mention a couple things just uh, while we were coming on the air. It's very clear that problems continue for Donald Trump as a result of that riot up on Capitol Hill. Deutsche Bank, Germany's largest bank, apparently has now reported that it will no longer do business with the Trump organization. The Trump organization has gotten loans in excess of $300 million from Deutsche Bank over the last decade. So that sounds like a blow to the Trump businesses. Just one more indication of how uh, severely people in the United States and all around the world are taking the spectacle of insurrection on Capitol Hill that occurred just last week, Julia. Uh, the pressure continues to pile up, Joe. I just actually, I was just watching and looking at the, the White House behind you. What is going on in the White House behind you? What do we know? I mean, we've got this social media silence from the president. It's, it's quite shocking for us, too, because normally on a minute-by-minute minute basis, we have some sense of what the president's thinking because he's tweeting about it. What is actually happening? And he's set to, to go to the border, Alamo, today. What is normal during this final few right. days of an administration, given the backdrop here, of course, is, is the pandemic? Right. Well, he has been hunkered down. It's very clear. And he's talked to not a lot of people, uh, but he has talked to Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader over in the House side, the Republican, and has talked to a few others. But uh, you're also right that the president is heading down to the uh, southern border today to... Uh, check out the border wall in Alamo, Texas. This is part of what was a larger plan to try to highlight what the administration sees as its legacy achievements. But all of that has very much been overshadowed by the events of the last week. And um, the big question, of course, is whether we're going to hear from the president more today uh, than we have in the last week since all of those events occurred. First check, of course, will be the president on his way to the helicopter to see if he talks. Julia. 10 a.m. this morning, I believe. Joe, we shall wait and see. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that. And as Joe was mentioning there, big business continuing to distance itself from politics and the president in the aftermath of the Capitol riots. Deutsche Bank deciding not to do any further business with President Trump, while Signature Bank says it's closing the president's personal accounts. Christine Romans joins us now. We talked yesterday, Christine, about business to varying degrees distancing themselves from politicians that were refuting the election result. But now it's getting really personal. Deutsche Bank, as Joe was saying there, saying we're not doing business anymore. You know, six days ago, the president was seen as a kingmaker in the Republican Party. And then after the events of Wednesday, it's become radioactive. The brand is really tarnished here. And you see Deutsche Bank saying that it will no longer do future business. It's got a couple of loans, maybe $300 million in loans that are coming due over the next couple of years, two or three years. So the president will have to either refinance those loans or he'll have to pay them off. And then this, this statement from Signature Bank, I found it fascinating. This bank 
Bank said they've been doing business with the Trumps for years. In fact, Ivanka Trump sat on its board for a time. Um, they helped finance a, a Florida golf property. They're actually closing a couple of the president's uh, bank accounts, a bank account, a, a personal bank account and a trust. And they're with this remarkable statement saying that the events of last Wednesday um, have tarnished the president's reputation. And it has tarnished the peaceful transition of power. We believe the appropriate action would be the resignation of the president of the United States, which is in the best interest of our nation and the American people. And whoever wrote that statement, Signature Bank said, we don't comment on politics. We have never commented on politics. We don't want to do it again. But this is such a profound moment in the American experience. We feel that we need to close the president's accounts, not do business with him and ask for his resignation. So a very personal uh, rebuke, I think of this commander-in-chief. Fascinating, isn't it, Christine? I mean, there have been many, many times in recent years where the president has been perceived to have crossed some line that he won't come back from and things always go back to, to normal rather more quickly than you would expect. It's interesting and will be interesting to see how long this backlash lasts and if it's a permanent backlash and what kind of in, impact it has on his business. Speaking of financials too, mega donor, GOP mega donor, Sheldon Adelson was pronounced dead last night, I believe. Yeah. I and mean, this is a huge blow to the Republicans, too. Sad, sad story. 87 years old um, and his his uh, casino empire confirming that he passed away. Look, this was, speaking of kingmakers, a kingmaker and a rainmaker. I mean, somebody who donated uh, lots of money for many, many years to Republican politics. I mean, going to Vegas to to meet with him and talk policy and strategy was sort of a, a, a rite of passage for so many uh, Republican uh, lawmakers. But he has passed away at the age of 87. Yeah. Christine Raymond's great to have you with us. Thank you for that. You too. All right. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that are making headlines around the world. Ireland had one of the lowest coronavirus rates in Europe until recently. Now, Oxford researchers say its infection rate is the highest in the world, reporting more than 8,000 new cases last Friday alone. The Irish government has since tightened its lockdown measures. China's Hebei province is also expanding its lockdown measures after a spike in COVID infections. 40 new cases were confirmed on Monday. A second round of mass testing is set to begin soon. So far, China has administered 9 million doses of vaccines to those considered at high risk. CNN's David Culver is in Shanghai for us. David, always great to see you. I never tire of hearing about the system that goes into place whenever we see cases pop up in China. Talk us through the latest. And is that systematic response that we see in terms of COVID cases happening in terms of the administering of vaccines too? Julia, good to see you as well. You know, it's interesting when you compare the numbers and you're talking about 40 new cases that were confirmed most recently. And you compare that to the rest of the world and it's almost laughable. Yet it's very seriously taken here because for many of days, they have seen zero to just single digit cases reported. Of course, these are government figures that we're relying on for this. But anecdotally, that's kind of how life has been. It's, it's near normal as though we were living pre-COVID. So what they're doing now in Hubei province, I'll take you there first. This is a province just outside of Beijing, is as you mentioned, they have already tested 17 million people. They are now going to do a second round of tests that will include some 22 million people. And the concern there is that after this initial outbreak is it could spread into the capital city. So folks within Beijing are on high alert, as well as folks here in Shanghai. They're trying to prevent 
any spread of this most recent outbreak. And as of now, they seem to be successful with that. How do they do it? It goes with contact tracing and heavy restrictions. In fact, within Hubei province, one of uh, Hubei province, I should point out outside of Beijing, one of the cities there has about 5 million people. They're now going on a seven day quarantine for all the residents, telling them essentially you cannot leave your homes. You got to stay in something similar to what we saw in Wuhan in Hubei province just last year around this time. In fact, when it went on lockdown for 76 days. So going forward, we now also look at the vaccine distribution. And one of the things you and I have talked about, Julia, is that they were not going to go after a population of 1.4 billion people and trying to vaccinate everyone. Instead, they're doing this staggered vaccination approach, much like we're seeing in other countries, but they're going after the frontline workers in particular. And they've even added on to frontline workers. So kind of expanding the definition of those frontline workers, if you will, to most recently including some of those in education, because obviously they're dealing with some of the students. Students go home parents obviously could be impacted by that as well. So those are some of the measures that they're taking as of now uh, with the vaccinations. And going forward, we do anticipate that more will be approved here so that they can continue in the mass numbers that they have to. Again, it's not likely, though, Julia, that they're going to go after the 1.4 billion because, well, they simply don't have the production means to do that as of yet. No, and it doesn't sound like they have the cases to require it either, quite frankly, given the way that they respond right. when these COVID cases pop up. And, and that's the key, both of these approaches. I want to ask you about a study that I saw published in The Lancet late last week that looked at those that were hospitalized in Wuhan, David. And I'm sure you've looked at this too. And the really quite frightening proportion of people that six months later were still suffering certain symptoms as a result of contracting COVID. Just, just walk us through the details of that. This was really disturbing reading through this. Yeah, it was published in the Lancet Medical Journal, but it was Chinese researchers who released this information and roughly 1,700 people were part of their sample size. And it were those individuals who were inside hospitals who were essentially admitted to hospitals for treatment for COVID-19. So those are likely the most severe cases. But what they've discovered is some six months out is that some of the symptoms lingered. I mean, we're talking everything from fatigue to muscle weakness, anxiety, depression, and even in some of the more severe cases, Julia, it seems as though there's severe lung damage that has lingered. Now, this is not unusual compared to other coronaviruses, especially when we go back to SARS, which obviously impacted more than 15 years ago. And so they have a bit more time to look at that research. And it even showed more than three years out after SARS, 40% of those who were hospitalized and having to deal with the severe impact of that illness, likewise, were dealing with lingering effects. So we just don't know the long-term impact of this virus. And obviously, when you think of China and the original epicenter, Wuhan, when it was first detected, that's why folks are looking there so specifically to see if, in fact, they can get an idea as to what the impact of this will be going forward. Yeah, that comparison with SARS as well, critically important. I did see this study published in the British Medical Journal. It was in August that found around 10% of patients had prolonged illness lasting more than 12 weeks. But the key with this Chinese study, of course, it's the, the longest study that's been done, and it's by far the largest. So, yeah, frightening, frightening numbers in there. That's that. right. David, great to have you with us, as always. David Culver there in Shanghai. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, why authorities believe armed protesters across the United States are gearing up for the inauguration. Plus, less than a month after America's vaccination program began, we're expecting major changes in execution. The details next.
Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where I'm just looking at U.S. futures and they've weakened over the past hour. We're actually now on track, as you can see, for a pretty flat open Twitter and other tech stocks that have moved to limit the online presence of President Trump and his most radical supporters were on track to bounce. But actually, they're losing their early pre-market gains, too. They fell on Monday on concern over how their actions might impact profits going forward. Bucking the trend, though, Tesla still set to open some 2% higher. It fell, actually, for the first time in almost two weeks yesterday. But don't worry, still up some 14% so far this year. U.S. investors still overall looking past the D.C. dramas. Though I have to say there is some degree of concern that an impeachment process lasting past the inauguration will limit time spent on boosting the economy and the pandemic response, of course, desperately needed tax hikes represent a longer-term threat to markets too. Investors concerned that rates on businesses and the wealthy will rise once the economy improves. Greg Vallier joins us now. He's Chief U.S. Policy Strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, always great to have you on the show and Happier New Year. We were talking earlier on the show about Senate doing effective double duty, working in the morning on essentials for the economy, financial aid, and Biden's program, and then in the afternoon working on potential impeachment. What do you think of that? It certainly is possible. Nice to see you, Julia. I do think that uh, impeachment is, is virtually certain on Wednesday, and there's not enough time between now and Inauguration Day on the 20th to resolve this in the Senate. So you could be on a dual track, as you just said. I think that for a lot of people around Joe Biden, there's some anxiety. He's got a big agenda. He needs to get a cabinet approved. Uh, Do you really want to make Donald Trump a martyr, uh, which he was in the first impeachment? So there are arguments, uh, including the argument that it will fail, that would argue against perhaps doing this. But for now, it looks like impeachment is virtually certain. Greg, define martyr here, because if my memory serves me correctly, actually Donald Trump's approval ratings improved during the impeachment process last year. Yes, it did. Uh, I think he has an ability to make himself into a martyr that like it's a witch hunt against me. And there are a lot of people, you know, we can't forget over 70 million people voted for him and he could certainly stir the pot. Uh, And again, I think for Joe Biden, who has such an ambitious agenda, so many things he wants to get done. Does he really want to complicate his life with an impeachment fight that could drag on uh, perhaps for the rest of the winter? How likely a threat is Donald Trump going forward, whether it's in terms of division within the Republican Party, the millions of people that you just mentioned that did vote for him, the people out there that were misinformed, that believe things they read on social media and believe ultimately that this election was stolen from Donald Trump and the Republican Party. How much of a risk is that going forward, whether that's for society or for politics? A lot of risk uh, to those two that you mentioned, Julia, but I'd also say he's perhaps a risk to corporate America. I think one of the most fascinating stories in the last 48 hours has been that U.S. Fortune 500 companies, U.S. trade associations like the National Association of Manufacturers have turned on the Republicans and have announced they will not contribute to Republicans who refuse to acknowledge the, uh, the validity of the election. That's quite a story. So that that's one where I think Trump could inflict some real damage on the Republican Party. Is that permanent, Greg? 
That's a really good question, Julia. I, I think no. I think things will change. What's the old adage? A, a month is a lifetime in politics. So things will change by the by the 2022 House and Senate elections. I'm quite sure. There's a lot that will come that we we can't. 100% accurately forecast, but I think it'll last for a while. I, I think the country is so aghast over what happened last week, and the new tapes just coming out in the last day or so of the violence, the horrific uh, scenes, I think that's going to leave an indelible impression on the country. So any kind of uh, rehabilitation for Donald Trump, I think, is not remotely imminent. Hmm. And all the while, investors seemingly looking through the DC drama, and I, I keep mentioning it. How big is Biden's bill if he comes back with more financial aid? And we're expecting something this week. Just how big is it? Because I know even you have been perhaps thinking of revising up your estimates. Yeah, I, I think at least a trillion. You know, we got a $900 billion bill a couple of weeks ago. I think a trillion is coming with $2,000 checks, a lot of money for state and local governments, for small businesses. Uh, I think we can get that done by mid-February. And despite the horrible numbers on the virus and all this stuff going on in Washington, I think by the time we get to late spring, the economy is going to be humming. And if it is, if the economy is looking good as we go into the summer, that means the next shoe to drop is going to be tax hikes. And you think that comes this year? I do. I, I can't tell you right now what the effective date will be, but I think that Biden doesn't want to really mess around with a big tax hike in 2022 because it's an election year. So mm. I think by the second half of this year, Second half of 2021, we'll be talking about a pretty significant tax increase. Wow, that would be a real conversation changer. Does he face any opposition, by the way? If he keeps it to a trillion, fine, he'd probably get it done. But even from the Democrat side, at some point, they're like, uh... Yeah, really good point. I think, obviously, a lot of Republicans are hesitant to have another big stimulus bill. But there are several Democrats headed by uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia who are saying it's too much. You know, it's too much money. We don't need something that big. Some people don't need a $2,000 check. So that'll be part of the debate. But I, I do think the votes are there to get a stimulus bill by the end of February. And I, I think it sets the economy up for a pretty nice run starting in the spring. Yeah, you use the term humming in your note, and I, I couldn't yeah. agree more if that's what we get. Greg, humming along with it. Greg Valier, great to have you with us, the chief U.S. policy strategist there at AGF Investments. Great to see you, sir, as always. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Wall Street is up and running this Tuesday. And as expected, U.S. stocks little changed in early trading this Tuesday. Futures were solidly higher an hour or so ago. So perhaps the selling pressure we saw in yesterday's session isn't quite over yet. Let's call it consolidation here. Very close to record highs. Perhaps investors also casting a wary eye on what we're seeing in the bond market, where 10-year treasuries are above 1% for the fifth straight session. Rising yields could ultimately put some pressure on stocks, particularly tech stocks. We've also got oil rallying in the session as well. Energy and financials benefiting on recovery hopes up by more than 1%. In the meantime, it's another volatile day for Bitcoin too. Keep an eye on this. Bitcoin still falling from a record of nearly $42,000 hit just a few days ago. As you can see, we're above 
$33 in the session. All right, let's bring it back to one of our top stories today. And alarming new details in the wake of the attack on the U.S. Capitol. The FBI says armed protests are being planned at all 50 state capitals and in Washington, D.C., beginning this weekend. A state of emergency is now in effect in the U.S. Capitol, with up to 15,000 National Guard troops ready to secure the Biden inauguration. Jessica Snyder is in Washington for us. Jessica, what more do we know? Well, Julia, you know, this was an internal bulletin from the Mm. FBI that we obtained. I've looked at it. It lays out in stark detail the warnings that there really could be this cascade of uprisings and violence, not just in Washington, but all over this country. So the bulletin says several things. It says, first, credible calls. There are credible calls for armed protests at the 50 state capitals, as well as the U.S. Capitol, all in the lead up to the inauguration next week. Some call for January 16th, some call for January 17th, up until the 20th. Plus, the FBI's warning about a group who's calling for others to join them to storm government courthouses and also administrative buildings around the country if the president is removed from office any time before January 20th. So those are two things that the FBI is laying out. But especially alarming is that they are also seeing a number of threats against the president-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. So federal agents, they are monitoring all of these threats in real time, Julia. But it is a a stark reminder that a lot of these threats are proliferating on social media. And it's just a matter of keeping up and seeing which ones might be credible. So the good news is, though, in the meantime, President Trump has approved a request from D.C.'s mayor for emergency assistance to help prepare for the inauguration. And also, Julia, the Pentagon has approved that increase for National Guard troops. Thousands of them are expected here in the Capitol. So, you know, while state and federal and local law enforcement agencies, they are scrambling to understand and thwart the threats. There is also law enforcement and National Guards members who will be moving in to protect this city. And other states are taking action as well, Julia. Yeah, the increased security presence clearly essential here. But you mentioned something about the proliferation of potential threats on social media for Mm. the security forces here trying to filter through these and understand what's a real threat and what isn't. This is a huge, huge challenge. It is, absolutely. And, you know, we know that they are all over it. They're talking about, you know, hundreds of federal investigators, hundreds of agents. They're manning um, three different um, areas around the country uh, that the FBI has actually initiated command centers. They're working 24-7, all of the 50-plus field offices for the FBI. So this is a nationwide effort. It's concentrated here in Washington, but it's all over the country. And then, of course, Julia, it's all online as well, where these threats are really uh, being made repeatedly, and they're just trying to determine which ones might be credible. Yeah, Jessica Schneider, thank you so much for that report there. All right, coming up after the break, adding some very desperately needed vigor to the vaccine rollout here in the United States. All the details next. Welcome back to First Move. Expect sweeping changes in the way coronavirus vaccines are rolled out here in the United States. The details are due out later today, but one official telling CNN second doses will now be released immediately. 
That matches the plan already promised by President-elect Joe Biden, and it means anyone aged over 65 can get the vaccine straight away. It comes as the Kaiser Family Foundation say states are deviating from CDC guidelines about who gets vaccinated first, leading to a, quote, vaccine labyrinth, in their words, across the country. While our next guest describes vaccine distribution as a disaster so far, but says it's not too late to fix it. Dr. Peter Hotez is co-director of the Center for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's talk about the decision from the administration to effectively match what President-elect Joe Biden's incoming administration has already said they will do. How do we need to think about this? You know, we're only now, I think, getting our arms around the enormity of the task ahead of us, Mm. Julia. We've got to vaccinate three quarters of the U.S. population by the end of the summer. Uh, So we're talking about 240 million Americans. That's the number we estimate will be required in order to interrupt virus transmission. And when you when you do that, look at that on a daily basis, you're talking about two million Americans every day. And right now we're just not set up for it. We don't have the vaccination infrastructure for it. We don't have all the vaccines uh, and the rules are a little overly fussy in, in terms of doing that high throughput vaccination. So I've been calling out to call an audible, call a mid-course adjustment in order to, to meet that demand because we have no other choice. We've been backed into a corner. We've not done anything to contain COVID-19 across America. This is all we have left. So this has this can't fail. So there's a few things there. There's the first thing you mentioned, which is supply. The second thing is the Uh, administration or the distribution of these vaccines and the infrastructure there. And then the third thing is the sort of micro way that we've gone about distributing it via the CDC guidelines, which I just mentioned now individual states are just abandoning or widening out the groups of people who can get the vaccine, at least in the short term. How do we fix what's going on? Because we need to think about this in your point, more macro, more people need to be vaccinated and quickly. Yeah, you know, it's almost a systems engineering problem. I mean, we really have to look at this, taking a step back, taking a step back and say, all right, if we need that kind of high, through, high throughput, what are we supposed to do? First of all, the health system is too modest. Uh, the pharmacy chains are doing what they can. The hospital systems are doing what they can. But that's all we really have is a health system in the U.S. We've we've abandoned traditional approaches to public health control, and we have to restore bits of that, at least for now. And, and that means, I think, opening up large hubs, uh, outdoor arenas that are well-staffed with medical qualified personnel and, and outdoors, because that way we can do it safely with adequate uh, social distancing. So, you know, when you look at our urban areas, we have to, when you pare down from that one one to two million Americans a day, that's 10 to 20,000 per day in our large cities. We're not even close to that. So we have to get there. Um, And when you start doing that kind of high throughput, if you have to start uh, going through who's an essential worker, who qualifies uh, based on comorbid conditions, as best you can, you try to adhere to that, but recognize that if you're too fussy, it turns people away and you're not going to get that high throughput. And then lastly, we're going to need additional vaccines. I don't think the two mRNA vaccines by themselves will be adequate in terms of scale to vaccinate the U.S. population. We're going to need the two adenovirus vaccines, a particle vaccine. We have a recombinant protein vaccine. And the problem is we have no other choice. We can't 
we can't mess up this time like we've messed up the entry of the virus coming in from Europe or or what what happened with the diagnostic testing or the southern surge in in, in the in the summer or the fall surge now this is our last hope and so we have to get it right and this has to be the number one priority for the country right now yeah it's fascinating for an international audience i think too to understand what's going on in the united states as they follow and try and learn potentially from the mistakes admittedly and to your point uh, the medical systems work very differently but even just these early mistakes of trying perhaps to phase in the delivery of the vaccines and and we can see in this country it's it's simply not working and we have to do this quicker What we're not seeing and what you're not advocating here is discussions about delaying the second dose or just doing one dose for these vaccines that require two. You think that's unproductive. Just explain why, because this is happening where they're delaying the second dose in other nations. Sure. It's really based on the scientific data. If you looked at the early clinical trial results, uh, we we know over the last for the last decade that we need high levels of virus neutralizing antibody to achieve adequate protection, and that's something that the that the community of coronavirus scientists, including our lab, has been looking at. And the initial hope for all of these organizations, whether it's AstraZeneca, Oxford, or Moderna, or Pfizer, was to create a single dose vaccine. But the single dose fact in, in a single dose, you had a lot of variability in the levels of virus neutralizing antibodies. Some individuals responded strongly, others really nothing at all. And you needed that second dose to bring everybody up to that high level. So the point is two doses looks like they're excellent vaccines. One dose is like a roll of the dice at the craps table. And so that's not going to be adequate. So while it's fine to roll out all of the doses now, we absolutely have to ensure that everybody gets their second dose in a timely manner. Otherwise, we know we're not going to be protecting individuals. And as long as people understand that, I think it's fine to roll out the first dose, but there absolutely has to be this commitment to getting everybody their second dose in a timely manner. Yeah, and it's interesting you say that because we spoke to the chairman of Moderna and he said, look, we are refining this. We're trying to come up with a solution that just requires one dose. But for now, this is what we've got and this is what's on the market. I want to ask you a question that I hear discussed a lot. Once you've had the vaccination and the two doses, and I know you're one of those actually that has received both. Dr. Hodes, are you still assuming that you can carry this virus and that even though you hope and you have antibodies against it, that you could perhaps still give the virus to somebody else. Yeah, so what, what happens is when you get those, when by the time you get the second dose, a few days afterwards, you'll have high levels of virus neutralizing antibody. What that means is you will not go to the hospital, you will not go to the intensive care unit. We have the studies to show that, and that's really important. Uh, and that's the major driver for people getting vaccinated. What we don't know is uh, after, even after you're vaccinated, if you're exposed to the virus, could you carry it without symptoms? Could you still shed virus in your nose and mouth? We're doing the, those studies are underway now, but what it means is, at least for the time being, even after you're vaccinated, even though you can walk around with knowing that you're not going to the hospital or your family member is vaccinated, is not going to the hospital or your friends, um, they could still be shedding virus. And, and so for the time being, we'll still need to wear masks and maintain some level of social distancing. Once the studies show, confirm that it stops asymptomatic transmission, some of that can be li- lifted. So the way to look at this is we're on this 
slow road to recovery now with every passing month hopefully things get will get a little better the problem is we still have people who are defiant of social distancing and masks and they're getting sick and we'll be at 400,000 Americans who will lose their lives by around the time of the inauguration which is just an utter catastrophe yeah it's just completely mortifying frightening um, very quickly how long do you think those studies will take before we can definitively say we're, we're going to have a, a bunch of, you know, there's going to be a lot of vaccine news coming out in 2021. We're going to hopefully learn whether or not this vaccine stops asymptomatic transmission. We'll have clinical trials, pediatric clinical trials, but we'll be rolling out additional vaccines. We could have four or five vaccines in the United States, additional ones in the UK, vaccinations globally. So uh, there's going to be a lot of news uh, and hopefully we'll have a system of, of, of communicating this better than we have in the past because People have lots of questions uh, that are not being answered right now. So we, we will be alert. There'll be a lot more information forthcoming uh, with each passing week. Yeah, but we've gone full circle and it's why you just have to get as many people vaccinated in as soon as time as possible. And that's the, that's the answer. Dr. Peter Tez, always great to chat to you, sir. Thank you so much. Co-director of the Centre for Vaccine Development at Texas Children's Hospital and Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at the Baylor College of Medicine. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, pro-Trump voices are having to find new platforms to air their views. Donio Sullivan looks at the avenues still available. Welcome back to First Move. Airbnb taking preemptive steps to ban members of hate groups from staying in Washington ahead of next week's presidential inauguration. The accommodation site will scour Washington area reservations. Anyone associated with hate groups will face a cancelled booking and a ban from Airbnb. Doni O'Sullivan joins us now. Doni, great to have you with us. This is a great example of trying to reestablish some form of trust in technology and putting society before profits. And I'm assuming, actually, they're going to use social media posts against these people if that's where they can find the information. Yeah, and as well, they're also Airbnb said that they are going through the uh, arrest uh, logs of whoever was arrested in in DC uh, or as a result of the DC um, mob last week. Uh, that they will also be prevented from renting uh, in the DC area uh, around the inauguration. So you're starting to see, you know, members of these hate groups and people who really truly believe in and push these conspiracy theories are having a very very tough time not only from Airbnb but also getting kicked off social media platforms and we took a look at where where what platforms they are going uh, now that they don't have a home on Facebook or Twitter. Have a listen. We had an election that was stolen from us. Some of the biggest peddlers of the conspiracy theory that Trump didn't lose the election, including the president himself, have been purged from major social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter since last week's insurrection. The president's Twitter account has been suspended. But they and their followers have been finding new homes online. Platforms like Parler and messaging app Telegram that have few rules and where hate and misinformation fester. I'm moving from Twitter to Parler. I'm moving to Parler. I'm moving to Parler. I have a Parler account. When people push disinformation or conspiracy theories, those conspiracy theories are just further reinforced. There's no counter rebuttal like there might be on Facebook or Twitter where you have fact checkers and people who have differing 
uh, views that offers a civic debate. Weeks ago, we spoke to Parler users who explained why they preferred it. What is something you could say on Parler that you wouldn't be able to say on Facebook? Um, that uh, that the uh, coronavirus is not as deadly as everybody says it is. And you could literally post that on Twitter and get in Twitter jail for that. But you could post it on Parler? Yes. yes. No problem. Financially backed by prominent conservative donor Rebecca Mercer, Parler is a social media app with an interface similar to Twitter. It was increasingly popular and reached number one on the Apple Store for a time before being taken offline overnight Sunday after Amazon, which hosted the site, pulled support for it. Parler is suing the tech giant in a bid to get back up and running. But Parler did at least remove this post from Trump supporter attorney Lynn Wood, which seemed to call for Vice President Mike Pence to be executed by firing squad. The Wood later told CNN he made no threats and believes in the rule of law. The controversial far-right group The Proud Boys is urging followers to welcome new users to the Telegram app, where its channel has seen a surge in new followers over the past few days. We found this post on a Telegram channel summing up the potential influx of users. Parler being shut down has sent tens of thousands or more of people to Telegram. Now is our opportunity to grab them by the hand and lead them toward ideological truth. The further migration towards more secure fringe platforms is going to create a bigger blind spot for researchers and law enforcement. There's absolutely no doubt about that. So, Julie, a lot of folks will say that this is all a little bit too little too late uh, from the likes of Facebook, only, uh, you know, taking action like this after there was an insurrection. Uh, but also there are concerns. We've heard it even from Germany's Angela Merkel that, you know, this highlights the power of these social media platforms. A spokesperson for her described Twitter's ability to kick uh, uh, the president of the United States off its platform as problematic. Early days, Tony marks out of 10 for these social media giants on cracking down on misinformation? Uh, it's very difficult to tell because they're, they, they're very, they don't give us a lot of information or data. Uh, they're not transparent about, you know, what it is they're taking down, what it is they are leaving up. Um, certainly, you know, I was going through Facebook and other platforms this morning and there is still plenty of misinformation out there, still plenty of conspiracy theories about what happened last week. Uh, Trump supporters trying to uh, shriek responsibility for this. Um, so they're cracking down. They're telling us how much they're cracking down. Obviously, shutting down Trump was a huge step. Uh, but, you know, it, it's it's one of these things that is very, very difficult to measure. I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing about what Facebook and Twitter uh, missed in the weeks ahead. Nicely, diplomatically done, Doni. I'll do it. Zero. I can still see the misinformation and conspiracy theories circling. Sorry, Doni O'Sullivan. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure you love our show. Okay, good. And that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chesley. Stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow and Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.